Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Black Swan, we are exploring Jesus through the eyes of Mark's gospel. We are going to be looking at the reason why Jesus, who started off as a poor peasant from Nazareth, became one of the most influential figures in the Western world. I hope you enjoy. Our scripture reading continues with what we were just reading. After the rich man walks away, it continues, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, they were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God, all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything to follow you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children and fields with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. So I want to start this morning with a little scenario. I want you to imagine something in your mind. I want you to imagine that you're home, it's nighttime, and you're asleep in your bed. And then a sound, a crash, wakes you from your slumber. And as you get up, you're kind of trying to catch your bearings, and you smell the faint hint of smoke in the air. And so you get up out of your bed, and you go to the door, and you look into the hallway, you can see the glow of fire in a room down the hall. Now you realize that you've woken up at a very auspicious moment because you have time to get your family out of the house because it's in a place where it's isolated and you all can get through. So you start thinking really fast. You go down, you get people up, you grab your pets if you have any, and you run out of the house. You get everybody outside, you call 911, and you wait for the fire department to come. And as you're watching and waiting, you start thinking to yourself, I wonder if I could get back inside and just get one thing. Now the question is, what would that one thing be? Now, I think for many of us, we probably would start with memory-related items, things that are just irreplaceable. We probably start with photographs. Do any of you have photographs anymore? I know we put them all online, so I don't know if we actually have them. But if you had a photograph book, you probably would grab those, because that's what are, it holds all these memories in here of things that have happened in your past. You might grab videos if you have those, or diaries, things that are keepsakes for you. Next, if you have a little bit more time, you probably want to grab some valuables, antiques, maybe jewelry, maybe you have some things that have been signed. Who knows, you might have a jersey that was signed by one of the Blackhawks when they won the Stanley Cup in 2015. Who knows what you might have that you might want to grab to get out. And then finally, if you really have a lot of time, Then you go in and you get some bigger things. When I asked Adam this question when we were talking about this sermon a couple months ago, he said, well, I probably try to get my guitar, my grandmother's antique guitar. I grab it. I grab my computer if it were me, maybe my stereo equipment. Of course, if you have that much time, 
to grab all those things, you probably should have worked on putting the fire out, right? Like, that, <laughs> that would have been probably the better bet. Now, I think when it comes down to it, all of us know that people matter a lot more than things. When given the choice, we're going to have to probably go after our people first. I hope that that's the decision we would make. But what's interesting is, is that our normal day-to-day life, we tend to treat our possessions with much more care and love than we do the people around us. And this is the interesting thing about this fire thought experiment, is that it exposes a paradox about how humans live their lives. It shouldn't take an emergency like a fire for us to value people over things. But it does. And so the question that we're going to be exploring today is why humans, when left to their own devices, tend to invest their energy and their time into their possessions over the people who they are called to love. And to get into this, I want to look at our scripture for today, because this is going to open up for us a whole lot of material about what this is about. So, what's been happening up to this point, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark all year, and we're at a point now where it's kind of lost all of the narrative flow. It's just a bunch of random stories about Jesus that we're getting. People who come up to him, conversations that he has. And so this conversation happens between Jesus and a rich man, or a wealthy ruler, as they would call him. And so the wealthy ruler, he has one very specific question for Jesus. He says, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now that might seem like a pretty simple question, right? On the surface. But there's a whole lot of things going on in the background that I need to drag out for you. And the first thing I want to focus on are those words, eternal life. What does he mean by eternal life? I think most Christians, the way we would interpret this today, is we would say, well, what he's asking is, what's going to happen to him when he dies? Is he going to go to heaven or hell? That's what he wants to know. How do I get to heaven, right? But that's not what he's talking about right here. What you have to appreciate is that in first century Judaism, the Jews believed that when God established God's kingdom on earth, and I've talked about this so many times, but I need to just say it again because it's important for you to understand God's kingdom was not in heaven. I absolutely 100% believe in heaven. Don't hear me wrong. I'm just telling you what they believed at this time. And what they believed was that when God established God's kingdom, it was going to be in this place, on this earth, right here. And so what they felt was is that certain people who were deemed worthy, they would be given eternal life. In other words, their bodies would literally live forever in God's kingdom. That's what they believe. And so that term, eternal life, it literally means eternal life. Like that's, it's very literal what they're talking about right there. So the question he's asking is, what do I need to do to ensure that my body lives forever? Now the alternative, in case you're wondering, in Jewish thinking was not that you die and you go to hell, like we often think about, right? As many people, Christians will say. The alternative in Jewish thinking to your body living forever was that you would just cease to exist. So either you have two options. Either your body lives on in God's kingdom, or you die, and that's it. It's over. There's nothing more. Now, in traditional Protestant thinking, if you've been in the church for a long time, you probably heard this idea that there's nothing we can do to earn God's love. Have you heard this before? Okay, good. I wasn't sure. The last service I asked, nobody just, they just stared at me. 
And I said, please tell me that the former pastors here have taught you something <laughs> from the time they've been here. And everybody said, yeah, okay, we've heard that. So, even though that's what we tend to believe in this particular scripture passage, Jesus, he's naming off all these things that this guy has to do to inherit eternal life. And he starts with the Ten Commandments. Now, the Ten Commandments, they're broken into two sections. The first four are about loving who? God. Remember, there's only three right answers. God's that one. Okay. And then the last six are about loving other people, right? So Jesus, he starts spouting off the last six. He says, well, you all know. You know the commandments, right? He says, he starts off with, you shall not murder. I like how he starts with that one. Don't murder. That's probably a good idea. Then he goes, you shall not commit adultery. You should not steal. You shouldn't lie. He says, bear false witness. Um, And then he says, you shall not defraud. I think that's a really interesting one because that's technically not part of the Ten Commandments. But I think he adds it in there because he wants to get to six for a particular reason. And then finally he says, honor your father and your mother. Happy Father's Day again, by the way, for all you fathers out there. Honor your father. Remember that. So the guy hears this and he says, well, guess what? I've I've followed all those since my youth. And Jesus, what's interesting is he's left out one of the commandments. It's the commandment not to covet. Now, that word covet, what it means is you see what somebody else has and you want it for yourself. Or you have something that you own and you want to keep it for yourself. And so at this point, the rich man, they're talking to Jesus. Jesus looks at him with love and he says, well, you lack only one thing. Go sell all you own, give the money to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And it says that this rich man, he walked away very sad, for he had many possessions, and presumably, he did not want to part with them. And it is at this point that Jesus, he utters what is perhaps the most damaging statement that he has ever made in the gospel. He says, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you think that's a difficult statement to digest... In our present world, given how much wealth we all have in this room here together, you have to appreciate that it was even harder for the disciples to digest that statement. If you look at the gospel closely, they don't get it when he says this. They don't understand. It says that they were perplexed. And so Jesus, he has to give them an analogy, a metaphor. He's like, look guys, here's here's the way it works. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And at that point, it clicks. They get it. And they're like, what? Wait? But then who can be saved? That's what they say. But who can be saved? Now, I remember reading that a long time ago and thinking to myself, that's a strange reaction to that. Because what have I been telling you all about the disciples? These people have witnessed so much injustice where the wealthy oppress the poor. You would think that they would be happy that the wealthy are not given an easy entrance into God's kingdom. But they're not happy. They're confused. And they, it's as if they're sitting there saying, well, if the wealthy can't be saved, then who can be? Now, the reason why they think of it this way is because of how Jews understood God and wealth. Now, I want to lay this out for you. This is not how Jews think about it today. This is how they thought about it at this time in first century. So... They believed that your life circumstances, that that was a reflection of how much God loved or hated you, okay? So let me give you an example. Let's say 
you have a child with a mental or physical deformity, or you have some type of abnormality, then that was seen by the Jews and a lot of other cultures as God punishing you for some sin that you committed, or your parents, or your grandparents. Somebody down the line did something wrong, and God is now punishing you for that. You can see this in 2 Samuel. David, King David, he ends up having an affair with Bathsheba, gets her pregnant, she has a child, the child dies a few days after it's born, and they interpret in the Bible as that's God's judgment against David for committing adultery and for killing Bathsheba's husband. Now this also, this logic, it also applies to your financial status. So let's say you're a person who's poor. Let's say you're a person who can't afford to feed your family. Well, what they believed was that that was God's judgment against you for something that you had done against God. Likewise, if you were wealthy, you were considered to be loved by God. Because that meant that your family had done well in God's eyes. That you were a person who had really loved God the way you were supposed to. So, knowing this information, let's go back to Jesus and the rich man. So, what happens? The rich man comes up to Jesus. He asks him the question, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now think about what are the disciples seeing when they see this man? What are they thinking? They're thinking, this guy has done the right thing. He's a good guy, right? Because he's wealthy, that, mean God, that means that God loves him a lot. And then when Jesus throws out the thing, he says, well, hey, you've got to follow the commandments, right? That's what he says. Follow the commandments. Well, he says, well, I followed all those since my youth. So when the disciples look at this guy, this guy is essentially perfect. If anybody's getting into God's kingdom, it's this guy right here. He's wealthy, so God clearly loves him. He's followed all the commandments since his youth. And just so you know, I just want to point this out to you. This is important. In Judaism, they believed that children were not responsible for their sins until the age of accountability. That's what that word youth means. Now, the age of accountability was around 12 or 13 when you were bar or bat mitzvah. Until that point, all of the sins of the child are ascribed to the parent. So, children, sin as much as you want to, because it's on your parents. Okay? Just remember that. Happy Father's Day, okay? (laughs) From that point onward, your sins, they're on you. And you could live a perfect life. That was not out of the realm of possibility. There were people who were able to follow those laws so closely that they could live a perfect life. And so this guy, he is essentially perfect in their mind. And then Jesus just totally shatters their understanding of the world. When he says that it will be difficult for people who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples are thinking to themselves, well, if this guy can't get in, and he's basically perfect, then what hope do we have? We're just a bunch of poor fishermen. I mean, look at Peter's response. He's like, dude, I left everything to follow you, and now you're telling me I can't get into God's kingdom? And Jesus is like, no, 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 you guys don't get it. In God's kingdom, it's not the way our world works. It's all upside down. It's all topsy-turvy. The people who you would expect to be at the beginning of the line, those people are at the end. And that is when Jesus utters perhaps his most famous statement about the kingdom. He says, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. This is perhaps one of the most beautiful and one of the most challenging statements that Jesus ever makes about the kingdom. 
It's beautiful in the sense that he levels the playing field. What is usually an advantage in this world, for instance, if you have money, usually that's a great advantage. In God's kingdom, that is now a liability. In God's kingdom, the poorer you are, the more favor you are shown by God. Which is a real challenge for us in America, isn't it? Our entire society here in America has been built around the premise of creating the potential for upward mobility. I mean, everybody who comes here, we want each successive generation to do better than the last. Isn't that what you want for your children? You want them to do better than you did? That's the premise of living in this country. We love those stories of people who start with nothing and they work their way up to something, to a decent standard of living. But unfortunately, this mentality, it contradicts what Jesus is thinking here. Because in his mind, the wealthier you become, the more in danger you are of being denied access to God's kingdom. And so this raises an important question for us. Would it be better for us to be poor than to work hard and be successful? It's an important question. Would it be better for us to give away all of our things, to sell all of our stuff and give the money to the poor? There are people who have done this. The most famous example, Francis of Assisi. Francis of Assisi, he was the son of a wealthy silk merchant, gives away his entire fortune to live a life of poverty. Is he the example? Is he the one who represents what Christianity is all about? Should we give up all of our things so we can be first in God's kingdom? To answer this question, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the rich man. You go to Jesus, you ask the question, Jesus says, I want you to sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. How many people in here, if you were the rich man, you would do that? How many people would say, yes, I would do that? Honesty, I love it. Okay. Because if you say yes, then what's going to come back at you? Well, why aren't you doing that right now, right? Okay? All right. But then on the flip side of that, because you're being honest and you say, no, I couldn't do that, then the question is, what is it about your possessions that you are unwilling to part with them? And I think this is really at the heart of the reason why Jesus makes this request of the rich man. You see, whether we want to admit it or not, our possessions and our money they represent safety to us. The more possessions you own, the more money you have socked away in the bank, the greater your feeling of safety. And when you give away your money, when you part with your possessions, then you lose a little bit of that safety net. The less you have, the more vulnerable you feel. And so what happens? We end up taking all that stuff and holding it for ourselves, coveting it, because we believe that those things are going to save us in the long run. But that's not true. Our money and our possessions, they are not going to save us. That's only an illusion because it's based on the idea that today is going to be similar to tomorrow or tomorrow will be like today. I mean, think about that for a second. What would happen if tomorrow the entire U.S. economy collapsed? I mean, it doesn't look like it's going to happen, but it could. You don't know. And if it does, what happens to all of our money, mine and yours? It becomes worthless. So all that hard work we put in, all that money we got socked away, it's gone in an instant. And then once it's gone, what does that do? Well, what do we have left? Just the people around us, the people who we love. Which brings us back to the fire thought experiment from the beginning of this sermon. 
You see, whether you realize it or not, that fire thought experiment is the exact same situation in this scripture passage today. It's just a difference of how you lose your possessions. In one scenario, you lose all your possessions in a fire, right? And in the other scenario, you give away all your possessions, sell them, and give the money to the poor. The end result is exactly the same. In the end, you have to reflect on what really matters most. And so what this tells us is that our money and our possessions, it is a barrier between us and what really matters in this life. And I think that's why Jesus makes this request. Because if you're going to value the things that really matter, you can't love your stuff more than the people around you. Many people will say that their possessions mean very little to them. I've said that myself. But when you ask somebody to give away their possessions, when the rubber meets the road, what's going to happen? Most people will be like, uh, hold on a second. We are a congregation of great wealth and great resources. I'm not saying we're all millionaires, but what I am saying is that compared to most of the world, we're doing pretty well. Can we agree to that? Okay. Now, I think what we can take away from this scripture passage, if we're going to boil it down to a basic point, is that what Jesus is telling us is that if you have been blessed with great resources, it is incumbent upon you to use those resources to help those who are less fortunate. In September, we are going to be voting on the mission for this church. And this mission is going to give us an opportunity to live up to that responsibility that Jesus has laid on our shoulders. And let me tell you what the mission is going to be. It's very simple. We're going to be helping the poor here in Arlington Heights. How we do that is up to you guys, but we're going to be here to help the poor. And so this is going to give us an opportunity to do what Jesus is asking of the rich man. We can lay our possessions on the table. We need to raise a lot of money to make this mission come to life. And so I see this as an opportunity for myself and everyone else to finally do what Jesus is asking us. Now, some of you are sitting in here and you're thinking to yourself, well, Alex, I've heard you talk about this mission a lot over the last year, and I don't know. It doesn't really seem all that interesting to me. i got other things going on. Why should I care? Well, let me give you an example of why you should care. So A, of course, Jesus tells us this is what we're supposed to do. But B, what happened this past week? What's the big event in the news? Charleston, South Carolina. Now, I don't know all the details of that. I don't know if this guy was mentally ill. All I know is is it seems to be motivated by racism and bigotry. And I can tell you that in almost all instances of racism and bigotry, a lot of times that is motivated by poverty. And we will have an opportunity right here in Arlington Heights to fight poverty, to do our part to be a light to the people around here. Because when you expose people to a different way of life, when you expose them to education, when you expose them to upward mobility, you give them a reason not to believe in that bigotry and in that racism. If you look at terrorists, most of them across the world who commit those acts, they do so because they live in poverty. They are blaming somebody else for their situation. And so this is why they are willing to do these extreme acts. We can make a difference right here with this mission We can change people's lives in that way. And so what I want all of us to do as we leave here today is I want us to reflect on what matters. 
what really matters. And I want us to admit that we don't know what tomorrow holds. Tomorrow, everything in our house could be burned to the ground. So given the choice, wouldn't you rather take your possessions, sell them, and give some of the money to the poor than see it all go up in smoke? I know I would. So let's follow Jesus' teachings. Let's live up to the responsibility he has placed on our back, and let's use our resources to help those who are less fortunate. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.